for that. And good morning, everyone. Good to see your smiling masks here this morning. Um, we are continuing in our series in Matthew. My name is Paul Graham. I'm lead teaching pastor here, if you're a guest or if you're joining us online. And we've been in this series in Matthew for a while now. It says here at the top here, Matthew 47. There aren't 47 chapters in Matthew. This is the 47th sermon in Matthew. And I think we'll get to 51 before we're done. Um, But hopefully you have enjoyed the journey as much as I have to go in depth through this gospel. And now in Matthew chapter 23, which is where we will be if you want to turn there in your Bible or tap there on your phones, we'll be in the last part of Matthew 26. And as we talked about the last few weeks, the last three or four chapters of Matthew, we've seen Jesus revealed mainly as the Lion of Judah. And we've kind of wrestled with turning over tables and confronting Pharisees and signs of the end times and separating sheep from goats and the final judgment. But now in Matthew chapters 26 and 27, we return to Jesus as the Lamb. And we are approaching sort of the highest peak. We're approaching now the Mount Everest of history and of Scripture in chapters 26 and 27. This really is the holiest ground now that we begin to enter in the next three weeks, in the next four sermons, if we include Good Friday. Jesus is now on his way to the cross to do the most important thing in history that will ever be done. But before Jesus does that thing, He's going to describe it. Every Christian, even most non-Christians, understand that the cross is important. We get that, right? But why is it important? And not even every Christian understands why the cross is so important. When I was much younger and lighter, physically and spiritually, there was much about the cross of Christ that I did not get exactly right. And that undermined my maturity and my faith. Because I didn't fully understand the cross, my worship was weakened. Because I didn't fully understand the cross, my heart did not perceive the glory of God as it should. Because I didn't fully understand the cross, I did not treasure Jesus as I should have treasured him. Because I didn't fully understand the cross, my experience of grace was dimmed. I still don't fully understand the cross. But as our understanding of the cross increases, every aspect of our Christian faith is strengthened. Not understanding the cross will leave our worship wanting, our hearts still seeking, our faith unsteady, and our confidence unsure. And so Jesus wants his disciples to understand what it is that he is going to do, to understand the cross. And the more we press into that, the more our faith strengthens. So that is the big question of the text that we're going to read together today. Or rather, it's the big answers that are given. What is Jesus describing to the disciples about what he is about to do on the cross? What is going on here at the Last Supper? What is the significance of Jesus' words? How is he describing this turning point in history that his disciples are going to be witness to? The Last Supper that we base communion on, artists have painted it and sculpted it, theologians have studied it, philosophers have debated it, 
Christians put all our hope in it. So we have to understand it. And so this history-changing reality that Jesus is going to do, Jesus first and most clearly describes in this Passover meal with his disciples. And what we will learn, among many other things, from the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine and the description of a new covenant is this. In order for anyone to participate in the promises of God, we must first participate in the person of Jesus Christ. You do not get the promise of God without the person of Christ. There's no other way. So let's just press in to what Jesus describes here and understand the significance of his words at this Passover meal. Let's pray. Father God, yeah, wow, what a text. It's been a bit of a journey this week just getting here. So Father, I pray first and foremost for myself. Help, help me to embrace what you're saying here. Help me to communicate it clearly. Father, we just, we just give you praise for this season that we're approaching. This Easter season where we celebrate, where we remember what Christ has done. It's going to be incredible. Yeah. So, Father, your, your word is open before us. Pray that our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears and our souls would be open to what you speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Let's get into this. So at this point, in the final week, Jesus is just outside the city on the Mount of Olives. And he's just finished, as you remember last week, telling his disciples about the final judgment. And we considered that last week. And now, in Matthew 26, it opens this way. Verses 1 and 2. It says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So there's the first indication of our context. Jesus pointedly connects his crucifixion to the Passover feast. And then in the following verses, in the middle verses of chapter 26, Matthew recounts the anointing of Jesus at Bethany, which is another event filled with significance in light of his upcoming burial. And then we learn in those middle verses that Judas has betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then Matthew returns to this Passover meal that Jesus has drawn his disciples' attention to. Matthew 26, 17 to 29, reads this way. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. You might understand at this point in the text that this is about the Passover. Okay, that's the clue that Matthew is giving us. This text is going to be about the Passover. Okay, continuing in verse 20. 
When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay, so what is the Passover? And what is Jesus trying to say to his disciples in this Passover meal, connecting it to his crucifixion and to the kingdom that is to come? And so... To understand what Jesus has to say about the cross, we have to understand the Passover. So we're just going to dip ourselves back into the Old Testament for a bit to remind ourselves of what the disciples and what every Jewish person alive at the time would know better than anything else that they know. The book of Exodus is where it recounts the history of Israel being rescued from slavery out of the land of Egypt. If you remember your Sunday school lessons, this is where God brings the ten plagues on Egypt. And you remember some of them, I'm sure. It boils on the skin, flies, frogs, the river turning to blood, all of that. This is the setting of the Passover to come. The tenth plague was to be the worst. The anger of God, the wrath of God was going to fall on the land of Egypt. And that anger and that wrath of God was going to come in the form of death. An angel of death was going to go out over the land of Egypt, and that angel of death would kill the firstborn of every herd animal and the firstborn of every family that night. But God promises his people, Israel, who are enslaved in Egypt at the time, that there is a way for them to avoid this penalty of death And so he tells them through Moses. In Exodus 12, verse 18, In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread, this is the feast of unleavened bread, until the twenty-first day of the month at evening, a whole week of unleavened bread. It begins with a special meal, though. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your house. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. And then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you 
And your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. That's the Passover. That's the very first one that rescues Israel from slavery. The message of the 10th plague is that God is holy and just and righteous, but the message of the Passover is that God is also merciful. On that first Passover, God devised a way in which he could be both just and punish wickedness and also merciful and show grace at the same time. The Passover was for the whole nation of Israel. The the picture of salvation through substitution is what we leave Passover with. It's a picture of salvation through substitution that God actually began earlier with Abraham and his son Isaac, as you remember. At that time, it was Abraham who would become the father of Israel. Through Isaac, Abraham goes up on the mountain to sacrifice Isaac, and God supplies a ram in the thicket instead of having to sacrifice his son. And now, later, Abraham's offspring, the multi-million nation of Israel, which is trapped in Egypt, is substituted for a lamb in the same way. And it was a simple explanation of freedom or of substitution. You take a lamb. You take a lamb that was perfect and without any blemishes or effects. It says examine it for four days to make sure this is a perfect lamb. And then on the 14th day of this first month of the year, the same night that the angel of death will kill the firstborn, kill the lamb instead. And take the blood and put the blood of that lamb on your doorposts with a hyssop branch, which is a symbol of cleansing and purity. And also don't have any leaven in the house, which is a symbol of sin, also a symbol of purity and cleanliness. Get rid of all the leaven and take a hyssop branch and put blood over your door. And then you get yourselves inside that house and eat the lamb. Eat the body of the substitute. Identify yourself with the lamb. Make the lamb part of you and put the blood over your door. And you get inside that house and you don't come out. And when God sees the blood of the lamb, his righteous wrath will pass over you. Death has been exchanged for a death. Blood for blood, a life for a life. And so God passes over the households of Israel, not because they were more righteous than the Egyptians. Let's be clear about that. Ezekiel 20 tells us that they were full-on worshiping the Egyptian gods at this time. And then later on, in just a few days from now, we're going to see his anger at Israel at Mount Sinai because of their worshiping of false gods. He's ready to wipe them all out. This is not because Israel was better than the Egyptians. This is simply because God had grace on Israel. Because they were protected by a substitutionary sacrifice. The death of the lamb would set them free from captivity in Egypt. It would set them free to live a new life in the presence of God, who would ultimately bring them into a promised land. This is everything that God is saying in the Passover. I can set you free from slavery. You can come and live, and I will dwell with you, and I will lead you into a promised land flowing with milk and honey. This is the gospel of the Israelites. The blood over the door was a promise from God that they would be saved. If the blood was there, 
And the people of Israel repeated this sacrifice, they repeated this ritual, they repeated this meal to remember the promise of God's mercy, and they repeat it every single year for the next 1,500 years. And that's why Jesus and his disciples are having the Passover, because they will not forget the grace and the mercy of God in the sacrifice of the Lamb to save them. But that's not really the whole picture of Passover. It's tempting to stop there and start making the connections that Jesus is making for his disciples at their Passover meal. And we will do that. But we just need to go one step farther than that and ask the question again, why? Why did God do this for Israel? Why is there a Passover in the first place? If Israel was no better than the Egyptians, why do they get this opportunity for rescue and for freedom and for life? Why is God even providing the mercy of the Passover to them in the first place? Well, to understand that, we've got to go back a little farther to Exodus, or back to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, roughly 500 years before the Exodus, we discover that God has already made Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, another promise. He made a covenant with Abraham 500 years earlier that he would rescue his descendants from Egypt. In Genesis 15, it says this. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be slaves there, and they will be afflicted 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. So here's God talking to Abram 500 years earlier, And he says, I'm going to bring judgment on that nation, and I'm going to rescue them out of their slavery. And this promise that God makes to Abraham also has sacrifices associated with it. And I won't go into all the detail of the text. You can look at it later in your small groups. But God tells Abraham to select a heifer and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon, and he takes the three large animals and he cuts them in half, and he puts them separated from each other with an aisle down the middle, and he takes the two birds and puts them on either side because you can't really cut a bird in half. It's messy. So it's too small. So he puts the birds on either side, right? And, and then normally this is a picture of covenant making that would happen in those times. And normally the people who were making the covenant would both walk between the pieces And the covenant essentially says, if we break this word, this promise that we have with each other, let the person who breaks the promise have this done to them, is essentially what it means. Whatever happens here, this bloody aisle we're walking down, that's what's going to happen to you if you break the promise. That's normally what would happen. But what we learn in Genesis 15, if if you look at the end of it, it says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, the fire of God passed between these pieces. Abraham didn't go. Just God went between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, from the land of the Kenites, the Kezanites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The Terminites, the Paranites, whatever they are. There's a lot of ites out there right? And God says, I'm giving you this land. I've covenanted with you that I'm going to do this. God says, I do this. This is my promise. And get this, Abram, you don't have to act a certain way. 
You don't have to do anything for this promise to come to pass. Your people will be in slavery, and I will rescue them, and you don't have to do anything between now and then for that promise to come true because I've covenanted this myself with you. All you have to do, Abram, is receive the promise. Okay, now why is God making this promise to rescue Israel 500 years later? Well, because God had already made an earlier promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, we get the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And once again, God makes a promise Abraham doesn't have to do anything. All he has to do is receive the promise. All he has to do is go. He doesn't have to behave a certain way. He doesn't have to act a certain way. We know if we go in the Old Testament, he did not act well. None of the Israelites, none of the people that God has covenanted with have ever acted the way they're supposed to in the covenant. But God never asks them to. He just says, I'm making this promise to you. I pick you, Abraham. He could have picked anybody. He could have picked anybody on the face of the earth, but he picked Abraham and said, I'm making a promise, and you are going to become a great nation. And then that great nation is going to be in slavery, and I promise to rescue them. And when they are in slavery, if they take this lamb and they put the blood over their doorposts, I promise that their firstborn will not be killed and they will be rescued. And they don't have to do anything other than accept the promise of the lamb. But then we can ask ourselves again, why has God made this promise to Abraham? just keeps going deeper and deeper. Why did God say this to Abraham? Well, now you got to go back to Genesis 3.15. You remember Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve are in the garden, and Adam and Eve eat the fruit that they're not supposed to eat. They disobey God. They make gods of themselves. They want to be God. They want to worship themselves. They want to know all the things God knows. They listen to the serpent. They eat the fruit, and God curses the serpent, and he says to the serpent and to Adam and Eve, he gives another promise. He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's going to happen. Doesn't matter what Eve does. Doesn't matter how Adam and Eve behave after this. It's not up to, it's not Eve. If you're a really good, holy, righteous person, then you're going to have an offspring that will eventually overcome the enemy. No, he just says, this is what's going to happen, Eve. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do. You are going to have an offspring, and that offspring will eventually crush Satan. So God says, that's a promise. That will happen. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do. And from that very beginning, we can now rewind the tape or put it back and forward. And we can play the tape of history now all the way forward again. Promise after promise, covenant after covenant, God says, I will do this. Doesn't matter what you do, I will do it. Eve, you will have an offspring. Abraham, you will be a great nation. Your people will be in slavery, but I will rescue them. When they are in slavery, I will let death pass over them. It's a promise that will happen. God will do it. He provides the Passover lamb, the covering for sin, the way of escape, the substitute that satisfies his justice. Why? Because he is faithful to his own promise. God covenants with himself to do it. Which brings us 
all the way back to this meal between Jesus and his disciples on the very eve of his death. Why? Why has Jesus come? Why is there going to be a cross? Why will he die and raise again? Because God promised it. That's why. And we can be recipients of that promise. Not because of anything that we do or earn it, but because God has offered it and we only need to receive it. Jesus is the Passover promise that is the culmination of history since Adam and Eve. Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my covenant, this is my blood of the covenant, the promise, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus takes this Passover meal, and the disciples know all of this history. Every Jew alive knows the Passover. They've been doing it for 1,500 years. They know it. And Jesus describes to his disciples what is going to take place on the cross. Jesus is the Passover. He's not just any Passover, like the last 1,500 of them. He's the Passover to end all Passovers. In fact, this Passover, his sacrifice, he says, will mark a new promise, a new covenant. He is a substitutionary lamb, not available only for the nation of Israel anymore, but he's a substitution that's going to be available to all the nations of the world. He is able to cleanse and protect people, not just from physical death, but from spiritual death. His Passover rescue will not lead people into a new physical land. His Passover death is going to lead people out of captivity and into an eternal kingdom. The cross is not saving people from physical captivity, but is offering them salvation from the captivity of sin. That's what Jesus is going to do on the cross. That's what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And once again, the common thread here, the common understanding of God's promises, of God's covenants is that God has done it all. Christ has done it. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Apostle Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Peter 1, 18 says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, Paul and Peter are just saying the same thing Jesus said. He's the lamb. He's the substitute. It's his blood. He's done it. That's how you're saved in the person of Christ. It's Christ on the cross. That's the only thing you need to know. And once again, all we need to do is participate. We don't perform to earn the promise. We simply must receive the promise. We have to participate in the body, in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is what I want you to understand from all of this. Just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's in you. It's possible to know about Jesus on the pages of the Bible, but not participate in the person of Jesus in your life. The question of any of the Israelites on that night when the angel of death was going forth was, 
is this household, am I covered by the blood of Jesus or not? Remember what Exodus 12 says. It wasn't enough that the Passover lamb had to just be slain. In order for that lamb to apply to that family, the lamb had to be eaten and its blood had to be applied to their door. I mean, it's conceivable that some of the Jewish people in Egypt didn't even kill the lamb, and they didn't sprinkle the blood, even if they did. And they would have suffered the same death as the Egyptians if they did not have the blood over their door. If they omitted the blood, the lamb would not have done them any good. John Calvin writes in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race will remain and is of no value to us. You see, Jesus can be in the Bible and not in you. And just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's in you yet. If Jesus stays on the pages of the Bible, if you never partake of him, if you never join yourself to him in your life and join yourself to him in your heart by faith, then he is a sacrificial lamb that is of no use to you. Judas even took this Passover with Jesus and missed out on the covenant. Judas did not receive the promise of this Passover supper with Jesus. He ate the bread and drank the wine, but in his heart he was selling Jesus instead of treasuring Jesus. He says it would be better if that man had never been born. Because he sat there and he partook of the communion, he partook of the feast, he partook of the flesh and the blood of Jesus on the surface, but not in his heart. You have to take on the life of Jesus as a substitute for your own and make him your savior. You have to say yes to Jesus in your heart. You have to receive the promise by receiving Jesus. And then you get the covenant with God. You get all of God's one-sided promises where he does everything. He will seal you. He will keep you. He will sustain you. He will deliver you into his presence in the kingdom eternal to come. That's the meaning of the cross. That's what Jesus is describing to his disciples. That all of these one-sided promises, all of these covenants that God has made become real, are real in me. Paul says in Corinthians, or is it Colossians? I think it's Colossians now. Paul says in Colossians that all of his promises are yes in Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. That's what the cross means. Don't go one more day without participating in this promise of God. Don't go one more Easter season without pressing in and meditating and embracing the full meaning of the cross. This is where the justice and mercy of God is made perfect and where all our hope resides. And as you, like I have in my Christian faith and walk, as you comprehend the reality of the cross in greater and greater understanding. Your worship excels, and your, and your trust in Christ strengthens, and your confidence is just made stronger, and you, your understanding of grace becomes so much more real. Jesus wants his disciples to understand the cross like this, and they are going to receive that promise. 
and they are still not going to earn it. Peter's going to walk away from this <laughs> and deny Christ before the next sundown. That's how wayward we are. But over and over and over again, from Eve to Christ and to us, God says, I've promised, I've covenanted, I will do it. But you have to receive the promise. If you don't receive the promise, it's no good to you. You don't have to earn it. You just have to receive it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that just with a piece of bread and a cup of wine and two sentences, Jesus summarizes for his disciples the entire arc of a 4,000-year history and for all eternity to come. With a, with a loaf of bread and a cup of wine and a couple of sentences, Jesus says, this is me. I am the promise that you've been waiting for. You don't need the blood of bulls and rams anymore. You don't need this Passover meal anymore. In just a couple of days, the final thing is going to be done for you for eternity. Father, as we go into this Easter season, what an incredible place to start in comprehending the cross. And we'll never understand it fully, but oh, what joy to explore it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.